you're trying to fight a ghost. Okay, that's not, <laughs> I don't think it's ever ended well. Have you tried to punch a ghost? Your arm just goes right through them. It's not an effective fight. <laughs> Greetings, travelers. Welcome back to Tales from the Enchanted Forest with your animal companions, Fox and Sparrow. Hello, mate. Today, we're covering one of the most <laughs> well-known Christmas stories. Even though in typical Charles Dickens fashion, the name is four times as long as it needed to be. A Christmas Carol in prose being a ghost story of Christmas, or as we know it, A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. This story is a lot more modern than other works we've covered, having only been published in 1843. See, Dickens wrote this story around time when Victorians were trying to establish newer traditions like Christmas cards and Christmas trees while still grappling with the older traditions and ideas of what Christmas was. I don't know if he had enough words in that title. A Christmas Carol dot in prose dot being a ghost story of Christmas. That's like a summary that you put at the back of the book. Yeah, I mean, I have a love-hate relationship with Charles Dickens. I think he writes too many details. But when you're writing an essay about him, it's nice that he writes so many details because you can just focus on all the details. I saw that this was the actual title and I just, I was like, yep, that's, that's Dickens for you. <laughs> He's got to describe it. You got to know exactly what you're getting into. Though, if books continue to refuse to put descriptions of the book on the back of the cover, then maybe we all need to start going with overly descriptive titles so people know what they're picking up. I'm actually not a fan of that. When they have like just like a couple words or like a sentence on the back, and I know it's to make you want to buy the book, to drive mystery. It does not. But I'm like, give me a little little bit. Just give me a little bit. Like, tell me what I'm reading about. I'm going to read it if it's interesting, because like, I'm very much a judge by the cover type of person. But if I think it's going to be interesting, I'm going to read it. But I'd like just a little bit more on the back to tell me what it is I'm reading. On the other side of things, they should only tell us max of what the first one third is like i read a book the back of the cover literally told you 99 percent of the book itself by the time i got to the second to last page i finally caught up to what i expected from the back of the book like had told me <laughs> and it was only one page of new material essentially from there i love that someone should hire me to be like the back cover writer i would take my job very seriously it's an important role. Or the worst is when they just put no description at all, but then they just have a bunch of quotes from a bunch of random people you don't know. Like, this book is phenomenal. New York Times bestseller. <laughs> like, pff, But okay. like everyone's a New York Times bestseller these days. Come on. It is so weird how everything is a New York Times bestseller. What does it take to actually become a New York Times bestseller? Is it that you have to get published? Is that it? Is that the requirements? No, I don't to know. And not it? to like, <laughs> and that's like we yep. say this jokingly. Well, we say this jokingly because being a writer in any scope, like it is difficult to actually get onto these lists. But it does seem like most popular stuff just goes straight to the list. Or if you're a writer that's written before, it seems like your work just goes on the list. Yeah, it's hard. So we don't knock anyone down for being on the best, the New York Times bestseller. It's just I'd like to know the criteria. Like what yeah. what does it take? The reality is we're just jealous. I'm not a writer, but I wish I was on the New York Times bestseller list. Uh, we make fun of this, but if I was a New York Times bestseller at any like one of those like, you know, those like generic um, things that people put on the back of the books, I would just get that like tattooed on me. I'd be like, oh yeah, New York Times bestseller, like it's just on my arm right here. Yeah. Someone at Starbucks thought I was really pretty. I put that on my other arm. I strive up validation. Okay, I want a medium latte. Um, the name is New York Times bestseller. Thank you very much. 
<laughs> but yeah, sure, put that on there. But give me like three sentences to try and describe your story rather than his eyes were blue, dot, dot, dot. Whose eyes? What? Why do I care? What? what? What's happening? Is the story about eye surgery? What's happening? Dickens is very detailed. And so before the actual story starts, there are several things he wants us to know about the story he's about to tell us. You know, he doesn't want us to be trash-talking him and his lack of backstory. He wants to be very clear that this is going to be a ghost story. And so one of the things he wants us to know is that Marley was dead. This is made abundantly clear to us at the beginning. So I would be adequately shocked should Marley, you know, dead as a doornail Marley, show up later in the book. After all, if we weren't told Hamlet's father was dead, we wouldn't be shocked if we saw him later. So for everyone out there, please remember that Marley is dead. We will remember Marley. Dear, dear Marley. So sad. We don't know really who Marley is, but you know, Sparrow, keep in mind, he's dead. This is how rumors get started. Someone is going to hear this podcast and they're going to go to their friend Marley and go, I heard you died. What happened? Are you okay? I don't know if I've met anyone named Marley. Well, Marley and me. Oh, yeah. Oh, Marley, Marley does die in Marley and me. Oh, well, to everyone out there, Marley's dead in all capacities. Dog Marley, human Marley. Dickens was, uh, you know, just prefacing the actual Marley and Me movie when he started his book by saying Marley is dead as a doornail. Now, on to our story. Once upon a time, on Christmas Eve, old Scrooge was sitting in his counting room while his clerk, Bob Cratchit, worked in the next room. A whole host of people came to see Scrooge including his nephew, a pair of donation seekers, and a caroler. But he sends them all away with the iconic Bah Humbug. Eventually, even his poor clerk gets sent home, with a warning to be at work early on the 26th. And Scrooge leaves as well to do what he usually does. Eat at his usual tavern, look over his bank books, read the newspaper, and go home to sleep. Bah Humbug indeed. Seems like a chill evening. Get some dinner out. Ew. I guess bank books, that's not as exciting. But then you just get to read and then go to bed. Sounds like a chill evening. Well, I think the key thing here is that he does this every single day. Oh. And at a certain point, it's no longer a chill evening, but kind of a sad and lonely existence if you think about it. Yeah. I mean, to some people, this is probably great. Like, you just, you know, eat the usual food you always eat, look over your money and say, look, I have money, read the newspaper and go, look, the world is really, really bad right now, and then go home and sleep. And then wake up and do it all over again. Bah humbug indeed. Bah humbug. <laughs> bah humbug is actually one of those interesting phrases that's now very popular with its anti-Christmas sentiments. But at the time, it was, I think, and this is where a lot of people are confused, is that it doesn't mean like a bad word or an oath or anything. It just, it's a fashionable word at the time that meant something was a hoax or a fraud. So he's not saying Christmas sucks, bah humbug. He's saying it's all a hoax, it's all a fraud or a scam. And to him, it's a scam to get a day off work that he still has to pay for. So Scrooge made it anti-Christmas, but the term itself was just that that's a conspiracy theory. Oh, really? However, something odd happens on his way home. And then again at his house. He keeps seeing Marley's face everywhere. Marley, the one we established early on that had died, coincidentally seven years ago on this date. Not the dog, right? No, not the dog. Okay. So this is this is Marley, who used to be Scrooge's business partner and used to be just as cynical and money-hungry as Scrooge was. Hmm. Definitely not the dog. (laughs) Definitely not the dog. Well, dead as a doornail, Marley 
maybe isn't as dead as we thought he was, because after a sudden carol of the bells while Scrooge is sitting in his room, who walks in but Marley? Still dead, but very much real with the chain wrapped around him. This chain was made up of cash boxes, keys, padlocks, deeds, and other items that weighed Marley down. Very creepy. Very creepy. And Scrooge is understandably very terrified of his dead friend walking into the room. But Marley goes on to explain that, Hello, I'm actually dead, dead as Darnell Marley. And that he was wearing the chain he created of his own free will in his lifetime. So his spirit was doomed to wander the earth to make up for his actions. He warns Scrooge that he will also end up with the same fate, unless he changes his ways. And to help him, three phantoms will visit him over the next three nights. After that, poor dead Marley floats away and joins the masses of moaning and groaning phantoms outside Scrooge's window. Okay, this is where the story becomes quite interesting and quite different from our modern ideas of Christmas. Even though this is a clearly an iconic story, there's something that's always struck me as very odd that this story is a Christmas story. And it's telling this message of taking care of the poor and like all these positive Christmas things. But it's focusing a lot on ghosts, which we don't traditionally associate with Christmas. We really associate with Halloween. I just always found that as an interesting clash that this is where he focused in on was these ghosts that come back to haunt him. I think so too. One of the things that I always, like when I first read the original text, which is where the summary is coming from, was also that there is this series of ghosts that come to see Scrooge and to help him redeem himself. But it makes me wonder why. Like, why did they come and redeem him specifically? Mm -hmm. Did someone come and try and do the same thing to Marley when he was alive? But my entire thing was, why did they choose to come to see Scrooge? And why now? And why now? Like, is it because they think that now is the perfect time to show him the error of his ways? Now is the perfect, like, you know, the crux of his existence where he can make that change, where he's in the perfect position to repent? But it's just, it, it always struck me as, why Scrooge and why now? Or is this just acid reflux and his <laughs> own brain is like, yo, maybe we should try doing something different? Surprisingly, Scrooge does think that. He thinks, this is all my imagination. I probably ate something bad. And those signals are sending up to my brain and making a hallucination. So Scrooge tries to find a logical reason as to why he's seeing his friend in front of him. And he almost refuses the truth in front of him for quite a while before Marley goes, you know, I can leave, but it's not going to change your fate unless, you know, you want me to go and then you can, you know, wander the earth as well. So Scrooge is afraid, but he's very much a realist. And he's trying to figure out how do I reconcile what I'm seeing in front of me as a ghost with the reality but it comes to a point where even he's like, okay, I'm going to ask Marley to sit. And then Marley sits and Scrooge goes, okay, he's real. He's, he's sitting there. He sat when I asked him to sit and now he's in front of me. So Scrooge is internally panicking. I think he's going, what's going on? Why is this person alive? Midlife crisis. I think it's like later life crisis at this point. I think Scrooge is very much older here. Late life crisis. But yes, I think the one thing I keep asking myself throughout the story is why Scrooge? Why was he chosen to be this person that gets redeemed? Does this happen to everyone else? Does everyone else also get this kind of redemption arc where they're given a chance? Or is it specifically Scrooge because Dickens wanted it to be Scrooge? It's main character syndrome. Main character syndrome, indeed. Or was he the only one who has been willing to listen? 
maybe it could be that Scrooge is at a point where he's, you know, one of the worst. People don't really care about Scrooge in London. They don't really want him, you know, in their lives. They don't really care for him. He's all alone in the world, really. And people keep trying to get close to him or trying to, you know, be nice to him. And he keeps pushing them away. So he's at a position where the ghosts are like, we need to intervene. Otherwise, he's going to cause more harm than he is going to cause good. Mm. So Scrooge believes this is all hogwash. He doesn't believe any of this is real. And so he eventually falls asleep. And when he wakes up, he sees that the clock is quickly turning between the different hours and had already hit the next night. He doesn't believe that he could have slept for a full day. I mean, he's no me. He believes that something must have happened. The clock hits one. And right on time, another ghost appears, flickering between looking like a young boy and an old man holding a candle. This ghost reveals himself to be the ghost of Christmas past and takes Scrooge down his previous Christmases, including one of him as a lonely boy reading by himself on Christmas Day, a lost memory of his sister, Fan, and a happy memory of his joyful employer, Fezziwig. He spends the most time watching his old employer on the night that Fezziwig threw a ball for all his employees and staff. Now, the Ghost of Christmas Pass remarks that this was a very small event, but to everyone's surprise, Scrooge takes up the defense of his old master and says, it doesn't matter if it was small, because it made them all happy. So here we see a little bit of redemption in Scrooge, where he's defending someone for doing something that Scrooge himself would never in a million years dream of doing, which is wasting money on a party for people that don't matter. I think it's really great that we're seeing him at a time when he did appreciate Christmas. Because even when he was, as a child, we just thought that he was sent away for Christmas, so he didn't seem to have any care for it. But we are seeing there was actually a time where he appreciated Christmas, and not just Christmas, but the the holiday cheer and goodwill of the fellow man at that time. So he really did appreciate that once upon a time. It's always nice to see the reflection of people were different in the past. And it's like, oh, I liked my past self or I didn't like my past self. It's something people are really fascinated with is examining your past self and how you've changed since then. I would agree with you. And I think Charles Dickens would also agree with you in the sense that I think the ghost of Christmas past is very symbolic of how our past shifts into our future because even Scrooge, as he's looking at him, he keeps thinking, why is he shifting between an old man and a boy and he can't really get a look at him and see, okay, now he looks like this or he looks like this because he's in constant flux. Mm -hmm. And I think that really shows you how when you dissect yourself, you can see that the key elements of your past really built you up into who you are. And the phrase, hold the candle to yourself, is prevalent here because the ghost of Christmas past, when he disappears sometimes and when Scrooge and him get into a fight later on, all that's really left is this candle on his hat. So all that's all that Scrooge is really left with once the ghost leaves is looking at himself and being able to just see for himself what he is and how he got to where he is. But I mean, the ghosts, I think, don't really have an alignment whatsoever where they're not good or bad. They're just these neutral entities that are showing Scrooge himself and the ghost will show him like a positive memory but they'll also show him some negative ones so the ghost also shows Scrooge's previous lover Belle at the moment of their breakup and in what can only be described as a really low blow he also shows her seven years ago with her happy children and her husband Aww. oh ooh. right that's that's mean it sounded cute and I'm like oh no that's that's a jerk move I mean it's what happened. What are you going to do? 
So he shows like he shows Belle, who's supposed to be, you know, Scrooge's love of his life, just basically saying that Scrooge's way of living was no longer compatible with her because he was so money hungry now. And then he goes on to show her happily living her life with someone else. And as if that wasn't low enough, they also watch as Belle's husband tells her that he saw Scrooge through his office window alone and working over a candle. Oh. You know when people say when you break up with someone, you should have like a revenge body or a post-breakup glow up? This is the opposite. This is like watching your ex just becoming sad and lonely and miserable and wildly hated while you live the life of your dreams, really. It's it's kind of pathetic, but it's, as opposed to her going through the moment where she's going, oh, Scrooge is kind of really sad now. It's Scrooge watching her come to that realization. So it's kind of cringy. Like, I would probably die inside and want to go home as well. Yeah. This is a really personal and rough situation that he's in. From what we understand of the story, this does seem like something that he chose to essentially leave her. Like, he fell out of love or, yeah, like you said, she he decided she's not compatible with his life anymore so sorry made... she she broke up with him she broke up with him yeah so i don't know if that changes your point but she's the one who broke up with him because he was no longer compatible with her life because he was too money hungry okay but didn't he already fall out of love and was like okay i'm going to honor this agreement because that's essentially a contract with you anyways and she was like you know what that's not what love is i'm gonna break this contract or i'm gonna break up with you wasn't that what happened yeah, kind of, but it's it's kind of ambiguous because in the text it's more so that like she was the instigator of the breakup mm. and he might have been saving face and being like, well, I don't really like want to be with you anyway after you've already been broken up with. But I think it's, it's more so that they went their separate ways. Mm-hmm. And at the time, I think Scrooge thought he was doing the right thing. He was, you know, protecting himself and wanting to go after this money as opposed to wanting to go after her. So he just saw her as another obstacle in his way. And she recognized that. And I think she was more brokenhearted in the moment because she realized what he was giving up. But I think he was so blinded by his need and his desire for money that he didn't really see it as a negative. He just saw it as her getting out of his way. It's it's just cringy, man. And it's it's so cringy. It feels like something that we should really hover on more, but at the end of the day, it's it's just sucks. It sucks, and he has a moment where he realizes that he had some negatives and some positives, but at the end of it, he's like, I just, I want to go home, and he gets into a, f- a fight with the ghost. You know, when they say, put him up, he's literally, like, you know, wanting to leave, which, honestly, I don't blame him. I would want to leave that situation as well. But you're trying to fight a ghost. Okay, that's not, <laughs> I don't think it's ever ended well. Have you tried to punch a ghost? Your arm just goes right through them. It's not an effective fight. <laughs> Unless he's a wizard. Is he a wizard? No. Okay. I then, don't think yeah. so. Well, unluckily for Scrooge, he goes home and he's left alone again. He falls asleep. The clocks do their crazy clocky thing again. And what do you know? It's already the next night and a second spirit shows up. This time, the spirit is a jolly giant embodying a sort of Father Christmas type figure with good cheer, a crown of holly... And he seems to be an overall friendly guy who transforms Scrooge's house into this kind of Christmas wonderland. Ooh. So the ghost and Scrooge go off into the night where they walk through the markets and they look at all of the people getting ready to celebrate Christmas. 
and eventually they end up in the house of Bob Cratchit, his clerk, who's having a little Christmas dinner with his family. This is where some people might recognize the famous line being said by Tiny Tim, the little boy with a crutch, where he says, God bless us, everyone. God bless us, everyone! See, when you said it like that, I'm thinking of the Mickey Mouse version because I watched the Mickey Mouse version with Donald... Not Donald Duck. I think it was Scrooge McDuck. Yeah. Yeah, so see, when you made that voice, all I can think about is the first Christmas Carol version that I saw, which included Scrooge McDuck with Mickey mm. Mouse and all of those, and... Okay, so I should not do a high-pitched voice is what you're saying. No, no, I think we should keep it because it's, it's nostalgic for me. I think the first version I saw was the 1951 version because my dad absolutely loves... Well, one, he loves the Christmas Carol, but that was his first viewing of the story so that's like iconic for him so he was really excited to like show me that version that's where my mind goes but i also did just watch the muppet christmas carol last night so that's also where my mind's going i love it i love that we have just different versions of this story playing on our heads as we read it because in my head i'm seeing the ducks i'm only seeing the ducks quack quack yeah i'm seeing a black and white god bless us everyone When I was reading the book, my biggest thing was that Dickens spends so much time describing this feast. It was this long paragraph after paragraph of what the Cratchits did, what they said to each other, what they ate, what they talked about, what they didn't talk about. And we could cover it all line by line, but this podcast would be a 500 hour long podcast. We were going to analyze every food item on this table. The biggest thing was they were poor. They were poor and they were celebrating this feast in honor of Christmas and they're going all out to celebrate something and they're all happy. And Scrooge is just watching these people who he very clearly recognizes are poorer than him. And it's all his fault, of course, because he pays <laughs> his, his clerk, a, you know, a non-living salary. But he's watching them just eat and he's watching this family And he has a moment where he asks the ghost if Tiny Tim will live very long. And the jolly ghost says he will not if things continue as they are and gives a rather forceful approach to Scrooge on the value of his life, saying that Scrooge will probably go on to live, but Tiny Tim won't. After that, Miss Cratchit also rebukes her husband's toast to Scrooge. And overall, this is another eye-opening encounter for him on the value of his life and the impact he has on others. What I really like about this moment is that the ghost of Christmas present will throw back Scrooge's words right at him. At the beginning of the story, he says something along the lines of, I do help the poor. I pay my taxes, which fund the prisons, and and that's where they can <laughs> yes. go. And yeah. when Scrooge is inquiring about Tiny Tim and everything, and like, why is this the way it is? He throws it right back at him. He's like, well... There are the prisons and the poorhouses. That's what they deserve, right? And it's like, I love that irony when they throw words right back at the character. I completely agree. When I was reading this, I loved that he just, he was supposed to be this kind of Father Christmassy type, like jolly guy. Mm -hmm. But he, I think, is the most savage. He responds to Scrooge in a way that's just straight up a reflection of how Scrooge has been treating everyone else. And says very bluntly that, If things keep going, people will die because of Scrooge. Yeah, and it's always that contrast. You said the jollies, like Father Christmas. For him just to turn on a dime and just attack Scrooge in this manner, again, being a physically bigger guy, like that's terrifying. That's a scary image. I can't imagine going up to Santa going, 
I would like uh, this for Christmas. And he goes, but what have you done? Well, I think the best part about the ghost of Christmas present is that it's not that he's scary or intimidating in that way where he's yelling at Scrooge, but he's giving off the kind of disappointment vibe because he's this jolly guy. And you know, when you have those like friends that are always funny, but when they're upset, you can just tell the entire vibe is off. (laughs) The entire Mm -hmm. vibe is off. Who am I? Uh, I'm a Zoomer, apparently. Well, I mean, I am a Zoomer. (laughs) But besides the point, this is when I felt the impact of the ghost the most. It wasn't Christmas past. It wasn't Christmas yet to come. It was this really happy Christmassy guy telling Scrooge off in the most politest of ways, I think, but just in a very disappointed way, in a way that he's showing that he's disappointed in where mankind is going and how they've taken the spirit of goodwill and charity and they've made it something that's so perverted and convoluted that even a man like Scrooge can think that he's doing his best to be part of society when he's doing the bare minimum. I'm not mad. I'm just disappointed. Yeah, that's that's what he's saying. He's basically saying, I'm not mad, but I'm very disappointed where this is going and where mankind is taking the future of the world, really. Mm Mm-hmm. To kind of highlight how much people really don't like Scrooge, (laughs) they also visit Fred, Scrooge's nephew, where the group make fun of Scrooge, but they also pity him. Despite all the roasting, they also have a cheer to his good health and his Merry Christmas while acknowledging that he's going to be lonely the rest of his life if he keeps this up. On their way back home, Scrooge notices that there are two creatures hiding under the ghost robes and the ghost reveals them to be two small, monstrous children, a boy named Ignorance and a girl named Want. When Scrooge asks where they should go for refuge, this is when the spirit throws Scrooge's own words back to him and says, well, there are always prisons and workhouses. And I think this is the moment you were referring to earlier where he's yeah. throwing his own words back at him and really making Scrooge see that the words that he, he uses to make himself seem really grand and big and educated and say, well, I pay my taxes, they go to the poorhouses, why don't they just go there? That those aren't solutions to the problems of poverty. All he's doing is creating monsters. Yeah, the moment you mentioned that, I forgot that that's where it shows up in the book. But again, I just watched the Muppets Christmas Carol last night and it came up when they were talking to Tiny Tim and stuff. So that's where my mind went. Um, But you're right, it does show up later. (laughs) I think, no, I think a lot of the movies and a lot of the adaptations, they take it and they put it in the Cratchit household as opposed to later on. And I can't remember, but I don't think a lot of them actually show these two children later on because they integrate it into the scene so well that it seems like it belongs there. I think it has a really big impact in the household because Scrooge is trying to ask about this child and he's starting to care, but it doesn't mean anything because his actions so far haven't done anything to prove that he's a caring man who deserves to know what happens to this child. And so I personally think the impact is greater when he's in the house and he's looking at Tiny Tim and he's watching his clerk with his family than it is a bit later. But I can see why Dickens made the choice to have it come a little bit later because then you can isolate the two incidences. Mm Mm-hmm. I think it's just a creative difference of where you want to place the ignorance and the want and the throwing back of, of Scrooge's words in his own face. And I think it also says a lot about this story that, again, there's a lot, a lot of adaptations of this tale. Even Dickens was the first one to make it into a stage play, and it was not long after he first published the book. So this story was very quickly adapted. I even think the following year, 
someone completely plagiarized the story like, <laughs> the following year and Charles Dickens had to sue and it was a terrible lawsuit like he won it but how the legal system works like he still lost a ton of money in that lawsuit they didn't even wait for him to die before plagiarizing his work like most it- great <sighs> authors like they are they're dead before people start doing this but Dickens you know he was just so cool people were into it right off the bat yeah the point is this story from the get-go was already being retold and adapted in so many different ways that things like these just kind of blur together it's just incredible like what he wrote he wrote something so iconic that resonated with so many people that even if things are slightly out of order everyone kind of knows this and things might come earlier later or some parts like some smaller things like this part with the two children of want and ignorance might just kind of slip through the cracks but we all know the story we know generally what he's communicating with that even though those specific instances might not be in the adaptation that you're familiar with. It's one of those stories that just enters our list of tropes because we have the Scrooge-type characters come up again. We have the three ghosts of redemption come up again. Mm-hmm. And it just there's so many different parts of it that become part of just English literature as a whole. It just really goes to show that when you write a book like this that can be universally applicable to so many different lifestyles, so many different types of people, it goes a long way. And what I mean by that is that we have the poor who can read this book and realize and see themselves in the Cratchit family, but we also have the wealthy people who can see themselves in the Scrooge-type character. Or even as the nephew, they should reach out to their elders a bit more. So I feel like this is one of those books that you can take away something from it. Even if the Scrooge-type character doesn't apply to you directly, there are just other characters that you can resonate with and look at and see, okay, well, where do I fit into this story? One character that often gets modified into being more horrific than he really is, is the ghost of Christmas yet to come. Now, when this ghost shows up, he is a shrouded shape and appears at the witching hour, and he's supposed to be a symbol of death. He appears as a ghostly kind of figure, he doesn't really speak, but a lot of adaptations end up making him more of a bloody monster as opposed to just a silent figure, which on a creative spectrum is interesting. Because he's supposed to be here as a herald of death. And he shows us what Scrooge's death and the aftermath of his death are going to look like. So by making him more of a monster or a demon, I think it takes away from that. It takes away from the idea that this is all Scrooge is doing. And it gives him this boogeyman to be afraid of and want to repent to do good for. As opposed to doing it because he's realized his actions were wrong. So this figure of death, the ghost of Christmas yet to come gives him the following scenes, and they're all about death of a mysterious man. So there's a group of people pawning off the dead man's items, including the sheets and blankets he died on. There's a group of businessmen discussing maybe throwing a funeral if there's lunch involved. And there is a young couple that's overjoyed with the death of their creditor. It isn't until the last scene where we see the Cratchits and their grief over the death of their son, Tiny Tim, that Scrooge starts to wonder whose death the other people were talking about. It isn't until the spirit points him to a gravestone that Scrooge realizes he's witnessed the fallout of his own death. And really, not a single person shed a tear for this man. It's brutal. But as we pointed out, he's he's not done anything yet to deserve anything else, really. This is the last uh, wake-up call, as it were. This is the final slap in the face of, get it together, man, or else. Yeah, it's... Sorry. Yeah. (laughs) Like, yeah. 
it very much is a brutal wake-up call to say this is what's going to happen after your death. Nobody's going to care about you. There's no legacy you leave behind. There's no happiness you leave behind. But what's worse is that there's another life that goes with yours, and that's Tiny Tim, Mm -hmm. who hasn't done anything in the world yet. He hasn't really lived his life yet. But he's also going to die because of your actions indirectly. Additionally, Scrooge had to come to this conclusion himself. As you said before, the ghost of Christmas yet to come is a silent figure. He says absolutely nothing, which honestly, I would believe to our modern or modern way of thinking, that is in some ways one of the scariest things that can happen. I know people who will, the moment they get into their house, they have to turn on the radio, just put on Netflix, put on background music. They can't be in their home without some sort of sound happening. So the idea, I think, even for some people just to just sit in silence or have to really reflect, like really reflect on your own self is scary and hard to do. Also, it's having to come up with the answers yourself. The ghost isn't telling him this is your death. This is how people feel. The ghost isn't showing him things that are happening and then explaining them to him or rebuking him for them. He's just there. He's a matter of fact. He's a matter of fact. And Scrooge is the one that has to come to his own conclusions, has to make his own answers. And Scrooge does ask a lot of questions here because he's obviously in a very panicked state, but he gets no answers. And so the idea of what do I do next? How do I stop this? What happens? What's happening? He's stuck by himself with this figure that is very much a grim reaper figure. And he has to reconcile the fact that he was a bad person and there is something that happens after death and the aftermath of what he's leaving behind. The aftermath. And so I think this is... Sorry. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) I like that. Um... A lot of people will argue that he only goes through a redemption arc because of the ghost of Marley, which makes him think, oh, this is what's going to happen to me. I'm going to become a ghost that's doomed as well. But we have to remember that when he first saw Marley, he was convinced this was a hoax. This wasn't real and that nothing like that would happen to him. And so if he had just seen the ghost of Marley, it would have been fairly easy to write it off as a bad dream or a hallucination. But he's going through the process of redemption on his own. And he's not seeing himself wandering the earth. He's not seeing himself being tortured. He's seeing his impact on other people. And this is where I think the crux of the story is that he's seeing his impact. He's not seeing himself. He's seeing his legacy. And this is what he wants to change. He wants to change what happens when he dies for other people, not for himself. Each ghost that's come has definitely played a significant role. It's not just Marley, but this is the turning point so you want to believe that when he wakes up he's very much alive and redeemed yay it doesn't just happen like that he has to go about setting his life on course he sends the biggest turkey he could find to bob cratchit's house goes to donate to the poor and spends christmas with his nephew who is very glad to see him the story ends with scrooge and bob discussing a raise and Scrooge recognizing that people might laugh at his sudden change in behavior, but they would have laughed anyway. His legacy was that he became a charitable and well-liked man that lived his entire life in happiness. This is honestly where the story loses me a bit. So, he sees the ghost of his old business partner. Fine. He sees the ghost of the past, the spirit, the present, and the Christmas yet-to-come guy. 
But this is what breaks me. He's getting all upset that everyone takes a day off for Christmas, but he was able to go out and buy a turkey on Christmas Day. No problem, and that's fine? Clearly some businesses are open. What? (laughs) What? (laughs) Why did he stay open? Like, clearly people are doing business on Christmas. If you could buy a turkey... That's the thing that breaks me. Oh my gosh, dude. Be Maybe it's because it's a, biz- it's a business day. Actually, this is, this is funny because one of the things I really, like, I took away from this story was that when he was complaining about everything being closed on the seventh day on Sunday mm-hmm. to the ghost of Christmas present, I've related to that so hard because in a lot of European countries, all the stores are closed on Sunday. And so... When he, when, you know, when Scrooge was complaining about that, I was also egging him on. I was like, yeah, you tell that ghost. Why is everything closed on Sunday? What do people buy if they need food on a Sunday? Because it's just, people it was so need relatable. time off. I know they need time off, but it's just something I love to complain about, about stores being closed on Sundays. Honestly, it's because it's such a culture shock. Because I'm used to 24-hour convenience stores, you know, 12 hours open drugstores all of that and then here it's sunday you can you can barely do anything i saw this great post online and it's like european offices i'm sorry i'm out of the office uh for the summer i'll be back in the fall and like that's the whole out of office email and then america or north america i should say it's like hi i've just stepped out of the office for two hours to go get kidney uh surgery but I'll have my phone on, and so just call me if you need anything. It's such a culture shock and a work shock, because when I first saw cashier sitting down at the, at the grocery stores, I was so confused, because I was like, oh, that's weird. They sit down? They sit down. And I remember at one of my old workplaces, it was such a rule that you couldn't sit down on cash. You had to be standing behind the counter. I was never and- allowed to sit down. Oh no, I was never, like, I've, I was a manager, and I never let people sit down, because it was part of the company rules. But when we were at the grocery store, I was just thinking, but why? Why can't they sit down? I mean, all they're doing is checking stuff out. There's no reason to equate sitting down with being unprofessional. It's just this made up mentality we have of if you're sitting down behind the cash, you know, you're lazy or you're unprofessional. But that's it's just not a thing. It's, it's not it's a made up silly rule that we've decided is going to be part of our culture, part of our work environment, but it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. Cashier should be allowed to sit down. I agree. That would be very nice. <laughs> Besides my little rant on that last part making sense, I like this story. It's not my favorite Christmas story, but it's a good one. It's very solid. It explores a lot of themes, but like I said before, I don't really like the ghost and the creepy factor right around Christmas. I want the really cheery, overly happy stuff around Christmas time. I'm all about singing the Christmas carols and decking the halls. I hate to tell you about Nightmare Before Christmas then. (laughs) Nightmare Before Christmas. That is my Nightmare Before Christmas is needing to watch that. I know it's a good movie. I've heard lots of stuff. But Claymation just gives me the hibbity-jibbities for some reason. (laughs) Sparrow. I am the ghost of podcast present. Come to warn you that time grows short. But before we draw to a close, we must deliver our five fantastic finds. Number one. Most people know this story and could even provide a rough summary of it without too much trouble. 
but most of them probably haven't even read the original text. This is because the story itself is so iconic and its themes of economic discrepancy are so universal that it has become its own trope. Any television show that goes on long enough eventually adapts the story by switching out their characters with Scrooge to experience their own version of the three Christmas visitations. Doctor Who, The Odd Couple, Smallville, Adventure Time, Ultimate Spider-Man, and the list goes on and on and on. This isn't even mentioning the millions of straight adaptations of the story. Everything from the classic 1951 Alistair Sims Scrooge to The Muppets Christmas Carol, and even to the creepy Jim Carrey adaptation from 2009. Between the easier boilerplate for the story and that's public domain, it's a good recipe for a story to stay relevant, even if most people have never read the original text. Number two. Charles Dickens' work was often inspired by his own life as a child when he was forced to work in a factory to pay his father's debts. The original idea for this piece was going to be, and wait for it, it's called An Appeal to the People of England on Behalf of the Poor Man's Child, but instead he wrote a Christmas carol. The use of elements of interest to the Victorian people, specifically through the paranormal and gothic influences, as well as the Christmas backdrop, allowed this work to become a reflective social commentary preserved through literature. His work was well received by the public, most of whom felt the light-hearted treatment of civility and charity were good representations of the season of giving. Dickens himself had written many previous Christmas tales, all of which culminated and influenced the Christmas Carol including a fantastical one about a mean-spirited man visited by goblins who showed him the past and the future. A lot of his other works also feature the contrast between the civilized upper-crust society and the poverty-stricken characters. Ignorance and greed are two big themes he explores consistently in his work and are both personified monstrous creatures in The Christmas Carol. Number three. As Fox mentioned, the themes of The Christmas Carol were highly personal to Charles Dickens. So, he must have found it very easy to write about this topic because he wrote the story in only six weeks. He wrote it, the whole story, from October to November in 1843 and published it that December. Not only that, but he was also writing his sixth novel, Martin Chuzzlewit, during the same time. Dickens himself published the book and had 6,000 copies in the first print, which sold out in three days. Unfortunately for him, Dickens was very fastidious about materials he used and it was well-bound, so he did not initially make much money on the book. Number four. At the time of writing The Christmas Carol, the idea of Christmas and its meaning was in flux with Victorian society. One of the main changes in British society was the marriage of Queen Victoria to the German-born Prince Albert. They began a trend of decorated Christmas trees, a tradition in Germany. And as with most fashions, the nobility followed soon after, with many households having trees decorated and presented for Christmas. Lots of other traditions also took shape during this time, including elaborate decorations, feasts of turkey, caroling, and personalized gifts instead of the traditional fruits and handmade items. Overall, the season evolved into a more commercial affair, but at this time, the focus was still on family gatherings and celebration. Dickens used the traditions he believed were important, such as family, charity, goodwill, and cheer, which contributed to their popularity among the Victorians. Number five. There was, of course, another popular Victorian trend that Dickens tapped into when writing The Christmas Carol. Ghosts. Ghost stories saw a rise in popularity in this era. The old nurse's story was written by Elizabeth Gaskell in 1852, and Robert Louis Stevenson would write The Body Snatcher in 1884, just to name a few. But why were these stories suddenly getting more popular? 
This is likely due to a couple of changes in technology and people not fully understanding when they were not working quite right. First, there is the invention of the photograph that came in 1839. If you see photos from this era, you'll notice that people are rarely smiling. This is because it would take up to five minutes to take a photo. So if someone slowly walked by in the background, it would produce a ghostly image of them. The other change was the use of gas lamps over candlelight. Gas lamps are much brighter and steadier, but what wasn't known at the time was the dangers of the lamp should the gas leak carbon monoxide. At high levels, it can be deadly, and at low levels, it causes hallucinations. Between phantoms and photograph and carbon monoxide poisoning, it's no wonder the Victorians became obsessed with ghosts. Well, travelers, we best be off. We have been warned of a final ghostly spirit visiting us before the night is over, and I want a scooby-doo on out of here before that happens. If you want to hear more from us and find out what our next tale will be, come join us anytime on Twitter at FromEnchanted or Instagram at Forest. Or if you're old school like Sparrow, you can email us at talesmechantforest at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your questions, comments, and suggestions, so if you have anything to share, please don't hesitate. And remember, travelers, if you enjoyed what you heard today and what we do here, please give us a review on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. It helps the podcast grow and reach new travelers to join us on these adventures. Thank you so much, travelers. And remember, there's always a place for you in the Enchanted Forest. Thank you.